We're just so glad to welcome you here today to the Community Adventist Fellowship. We meet at 333 East Colorado, Glendale, in California. Now, today's program is going to be quite different to any other program we've taken right here because I'm going to spend this time answering questions that have come in. Uh, we have been collecting these questions. We had an answer and question, uh, question and answer just a week or two back. And uh, we had a large group of people out with a tremendous interest on Tuesday night. But I just touched the tip of the iceberg. And so what I've done today, I've taken the questions and I've grouped them together. And some of them I have written down on sheets of paper so that we're not going to have repetitions. And I'm going to go as fast as I can to answer your questions. And these are interesting questions. They cover just about every subject from sex to the Sabbath. And here is the first question. A Christian is not obligated, is he, to forgive an unrepentant sinner? And the person quotes where Jesus said, if your brother sins against you seven times, and if he turns to you and says, please forgive me, then you've got to forgive him. But if he doesn't say, please forgive me, you don't have to forgive him. So a person is not obligated to forgive an unrepentant sinner is the question or the statement. Would you please take your Bibles and we're going to go today like the wind. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 6 and verse 12. There are Bibles in the pews. We want you to turn to the text because today we're going to take the Bible as our authority and we'll be giving answers today not from the creeds of the church or from some policy makers, but we'll be giving the answers from the Bible, the Word of God. And so please turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 6 and we're going to notice the words of our Lord Jesus Christ in verse 12 where Jesus is teaching us to say this great prayer. He said, forgive us our debts or our sins as we have also forgiven our debtors or those who sin against us. And verse 14, Jesus said, if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. I must admit today that I've had a problem with the question of forgiveness. I once upon a time for years believed that I was only obligated to forgive a person when that person had repented. I no longer believe that. I believe that I ought to forgive people whether they repent or not and then leave them in the hands of God. And if you don't do this, my friend, you're going to get yourself in a terrible mess psychologically because you're going to get a lot of anger. And the Bible tells us if you want to get rid of your anger, you've got to learn to forgive your enemies. Now let me give you a little theological basis for my belief in this. Come over here to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and uh, you can see I'm going a little fast today because if I don't get through your question, you're going to think I just didn't want to answer it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and it gives us the basis of our salvation. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14. Have you got the text? Yes. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14. The Bible says, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all. What does it say? And therefore, how many died? 
The Bible says all died legally when Jesus died on the cross. The whole world died legally when Jesus Christ died on the cross. God forgave the world legally. God forgave the world when Jesus died on the cross because the Bible says when one died for all, all died. Would you like to know the moment of your death legally? Would you like to know the moment of your death legally? I know when it is. The legal moment of your death was Black Friday, 3 o'clock in the afternoon and 31 AD because when Jesus died legally, the world died in him and legally God forgave the world when he died. Now come over, notice in the same chapter, you don't have to come anywhere. Uh, verse 18 and onwards, it says, all this is from God, the same chapter, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself and Christ Christ, not counting man's sins against them. The Bible says that God became reconciled right here at the cross. And the Bible says he wasn't counting men's sins against them when he died for our sins. Listen to this. This is what the Bible says. The Bible says that God was reconciling the world to himself. He reconciled the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Listen very carefully. When Jesus died on the cross, the world was reckoned legally to be dead. Legally, God forgave the world all of the sin of the world. But listen to this. Forgiveness is of no avail unless it is accepted. This is the point. God, my friend, has given his son. Jesus has made a perfect atoning sacrifice for our sins. But all of that is futile unless the sinner comes and accepts the pardon. Now listen. I must acknowledge my sins. I must acknowledge my guilt. I must accept responsibility for my wrongdoing. I must ask for mercy and I must make reconciliation. This is how I accept the gift. Now God has given every person the gift. God says, I forgive you. I've died for you. Now you come and be reconciled to me. I'm reconciled to you. God is reconciled to us. But no pardon is valid, my friend, unless the guilty person comes and accepts the pardon. And you can't accept the pardon unless you recognize your guilt and your sin. Why are people going to be lost? People are going to be lost because they do not accept the pardon, not because God hasn't extended to them the pardon. How does this affect me? I need to extend to people who've sinned against me my pardon, whether they accept it or not. If they don't accept it, and if they're not right with God, they're not going to be in the kingdom of God. That's all there is to it. Now, I've had a battle with this. I've had a battle because I've had a person who's done everything he can to destroy my church and destroy my ministry and destroy everything that is sacred to me. And I have had the battle. How can I forgive him? He hasn't repented. But my friend, I don't need to wait until he repents. That's between him and God. 
you see. But I forgive him because Jesus says, love your enemies. And Jesus says, do you want to have your sins forgiven? Well, Jesus said, forgive those who sin against you. This means I've got to and you've got to, as a Christian, forgive people without conditions and then leave them in the hands of God. Does that make sense to you? Here's the next one. If we sleep when we die, explain Matthew 17 verses 1 to 8. Let me tell you something. If you don't forgive your enemies their sins, when they sin against you, you're going to be angry and then you're going to get depressed and you're going to get sick. And somebody wrote a book, Love or Perish. You better do it. It's not easy to do, but you better do it. Matthew chapter 17 and verses 1 to 8. It needs the grace of God. Matthew 17 verses 1 to 8 after six days Jesus took with him Peter James and John the brother of James led them up to a high mountain by themselves there he was transfigured before them his face shone like the sun his clothes became as white as the light just then verse 3 just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus and so the person who does not who believes in the immortality of the soul says here is a text that proves the immortality of the soul because this text tells us that in heaven you've got Moses and Elijah but this text does not prove the immortality of the soul it proves the resurrection of the saints and the translation of the righteous because the Bible tells me in the book of Jude, and I don't have time to turn up the verse, but the Bible tells me in the book of Jude that Satan argued with our Lord over the body of Moses. Now, he wasn't arguing over his immortal soul because he didn't have an immortal soul, but the book of Jude says that our Lord argued. Oh, he contested, not argued. The Lord doesn't argue. He didn't rebuke him because the Lord is not into fights, not into lawsuits either. <laughs> but the Lord just said, I rebuke you. And then the Bible tells us that Moses was resurrected. Moses was raised up from the dead. Moses is home in glory as a representative of the saints who die and who are resurrected. And what about Elijah? Elijah didn't have an immortal soul. He had something better. He had a chariot. And that chariot came pounding down through the heavens uh, with a great team of horses. It was a golden chariot. Swing low, sweet chariot, let me ride. And Elijah was caught up and went up in a storm to heaven. He was translated. He never died. This text does not prove the immortality of the soul. It disproves it. You've got to find a better text than that, and there's no better text. This is a miniature coming of Christ in glory. There he was transfigured. This is like the second coming. And Moses represents the resurrected saints, and Elijah represents the translated saints. Isn't it easy? It's plain as your nose. Okay, people believe that in the resurrection they're going to have youthful bodies, but Jesus had scars. Are we going to have bodies with deformities in the resurrection? Come over here to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Am I going too fast for you? If I am, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to slow down. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you just got to turn up the text and get a move along today. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and uh, I'm looking for the text. Come down here to verse 50 and onwards. And it tells us about the bodies that we're going to have in the resurrection. 
And the book of Philippians tells us that we're going to have bodies like unto the body that Jesus had. Jesus had the resurrected body, and the Bible says we're going to get bodies like Jesus. That's in the book of Philippians. And I'm going to read now 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 15 onwards. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Look at me. The Bible tells us that the perishable is not going to inherit the kingdom of God. I have a perishable body. Every time my heart beats, it's a drum beat that's saying, you're going to die. You're going to die. Every time it beats, it is beating the march of death. Every person here is going to die because we have mortal uh, bodies and we have corruptible bodies that is why we get gray hair that is why our, our skin starts to wrinkle up like prunes as you get older because it is a sign of your mortality and that body does not inherit the kingdom of God right now right Yes, verse 51, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed, for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. In the resurrection, we're going to have immortal bodies. We're going to have imperishable bodies. Why did Jesus have the marks in his hands it's a very simple reason why did Jesus have the scar in the side so that we will always have in his body the memorial of his death for our sins up there in glory the son of God is also the son of man and the person who sits with the Father on the throne of the universe is not somebody from Venus or Mars or Andromeda. It is a person from planet Earth. And he bears in his body the wounds of his crucifixion. And they are the signs of his glory. But we're not going to have any wounds. We're going to be immortal because he was wounded that I might be healed of my wounds. Uh, here's one. Is it okay to have sex on the Sabbath? I have decided that I will answer that question if the person who asked it will now stand up. Okay, I'm going to answer it briefly just the same. I am your pastor. I'm duty bound to answer your questions. I wondered, will I answer this one or not? But I decided I will answer the question because it may be, a, it may be of interest to more than one. The Bible tells us that out of the Garden of Eden, God brought two heavenly twins. On Friday afternoon, most likely, God invented marriage. And God said to our first parents, be fruitful and multiply. And just a little bit later, when the sun went down, God invented the Sabbath. And so God brought from the Garden of Eden two blessings for the human race, sex and the Sabbath. And they were both given to be blessings for the human race. And I hope that answers your question. Okay, now we're going to turn to Revelation chapter 6 and verses 9 and onwards. 
As Jesus said, he who is ears to hear, let him hear. Revelation 6, I don't know whether that's going to get on our national television program, but I don't know. Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 and onwards, just doing my best here today. Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 and onwards. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Uh, then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. And the question is, why aren't these souls sleeping? And it is a very easy question. It's a good question, but it has an easy answer because the book of Revelation is first and primarily a book of symbols. And this is a picture of the altar. And when they had this altar in the temple, the beast was taken and the beast was slain on the altar and the blood collected at the base of the altar. And so this is a symbol of the altar in heaven and the souls or the blood of the saints is lying at the base of the altar. And the blood is crying out, how long, O Lord, how long? And this is a symbol very similar to what you read over here in the book of Genesis. Come over here to Genesis chapter 4 and verse 10 when it talks about the murder of Abel. Genesis chapter 4 and verse 10. Now Cain had killed his brother and his blood was soaking up the ground just like the blood of the martyrs in Revelation chapter 6. Uh, now you come to uh, Genesis chapter 4 and verse 10. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Was that blood literally crying? Did the blood actually have a voice you say of course not it is symbolic language it is a cry for righteous judgment that God will come and avenge this murdered man and in the same way in the book of Revelation the blood of the saints cries out to the Lord God in heaven how long O Lord how long it is a symbolic picture exactly as it is here in Genesis now, my friend says here, one of my friends says, explain the text, tonight you'll be with me in paradise. Well, Jesus never said that. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And he didn't say it just like that either. He's talking about, of course, the thief on the cross. Would you come over here to Luke 23 and verse 43. Jesus is hanging on the cross and with his dying breath, Jesus says, verse 43, Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth today, you'll be with me in paradise. And in almost every translation, all the translations I know, you got the comma as it is here. Jesus answered him, comma, I tell you the truth, comma, today you'll be with me in paradise. And so it appears from this translation that the dying thief was with Jesus that day in paradise. Now let me tell you folks something, everything here is uh, conditional upon where the comma is placed. 
And in the ancient writings, there are no commas. There are no punctuation marks. And so if you leave out the comma, then the text is ambiguous. It can mean one of two things. Jesus said, I say to you today, comma, you'll be with me in paradise. Or I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, the Bible and not the translators who put in the commas ought to be the source of our truth. Now, I'm going to show you that Jesus didn't go to paradise that day. And if Jesus didn't go to paradise that day, neither did the dying thief. Come over now to the text I mentioned before, John chapter 20 and verse 17. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John chapter 20 and verse 17. And this is on the Sunday when Jesus rose from the dead. This is the first day of the week, John chapter 20, verse 17. Jesus here is talking to Mary and Jesus said, do not hold on to me. For I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. On the day of his resurrection from the dead, our blessed Lord had not gone to his Father. This is plain. Because when Jesus died on the Friday, Jesus fell asleep. And Jesus, he didn't go down in, somebody said, the Bible says he went to Hades. Yes, the Bible says that, but Hades is not a place of conscious souls. Hades is the Bible word for the grave. Now, there's a little ditty that people used to sing when I was a teenager. She went to Hades, or he went to Hades and frizzled and fried. Hades is not a place of burning. The place of burning is Gehenna. Gehenna, that's where people go into fire. And we could talk about the time. I've got a whole video series on that subject. But the Bible tells me Jesus went into the grave. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus' death was not a make-believe death. Now, those who believe in the immortality of the soul are going to have a problem with the atoning sacrifice of our Lord because they teach that Jesus didn't really die. They believe that Jesus just changed the place of location. You know, just like stepping out of this church and going out of this building, you go to a different location. Jesus did more than change his place of location. Jesus died for our sins on the cross and Jesus was dead. And the Bible says he slept the sleep of death and he was in the tomb. And on the third day, he rose from the dead. And when he saw Mary, he said, I haven't gone home to my father. I'm on my way to my father, but I haven't gone home to my father. So if Jesus had not gone home to his father, I ask you, how could the thief had gone home to his father? Therefore, we come back to that text. I'll tell you what Jesus said. Verily, truly, I say to you today, as I'm hanging here upon this cross, I may not look a king, but I'm a king still. As I hang upon this cross, I may not look a conqueror, but I am. As I hang upon this cross today, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise, and he will be with Jesus in paradise when Jesus comes the second time. 
And that's when the saints of God are going to be with Jesus in paradise. They don't go to heaven when they die. That is a notion of the Greek philosophers that entered into the church, uh, was picked up by the Roman Catholic Church. And in the days of Martin Luther, though some of the Protestant reformers said, this is not taught in the Bible, most people have been hanging on to it, but it's not a part of the Word of God. How can I know, question, how can I know if I have committed the unpardonable sin? Come over here. If you're asking that question, the odds are that you haven't. Come over here to Matthew chapter 12 and verse 31, 32. Come fast. I still got a long way to go. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 31 and 32. And here Jesus talks about the sin that not even Almighty God is able to forgive. Matthew chapter 12, verse 31 and 32. Uh, Jesus said, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven to men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. Now there is some good news. Jesus said, whatever you sin, whatever your blasphemy, whether it is murder or lying or cheating or fornication or adultery or homosexual acts, whatever sin that you commit, if you turn to God, and if you repent of that sin, and if you come to Christ, Christ will forgive you. I will forgive every sin. He said, except the sin that is against the Holy Spirit. Because if you and I sin against the Holy Spirit, we will never receive forgiveness. Now, who is the Holy Spirit? The Bible teaches the doctrine of the Trinity. The Bible teaches God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the Bible teaches it is the Holy Spirit who is the active agent in the regeneration of the human race. Jesus said in John chapter 16, when he is come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. You wouldn't be here today. You wouldn't be watching this program if the Holy Spirit had not convicted you of sin. Do you, know, do you want to know what a good sermon is? A good sermon is not a smart psychology sermon when you walk out of the church and you say, I'm just feeling so wonderful. Everything is all right. I have no guilt. I have no care. Unless you have confessed your sins to God. When you sit in church and there's a still, small voice and it's not the voice of the preacher. And as you read the Word of God, the Holy Spirit says to you, you're breaking my commandments, you're sinning against me, and there comes into your heart a mighty conviction. And you start to sweat under the influence of the power of God. That is the Holy Spirit. And if you say yes to God, you'll be saved but my friend, every time a person says no to the Spirit of God, it makes it easier to say no the next time. And a person, if he says no long enough, will come to the place where he will no longer repent of his sins because he'll not feel his need. What is the unpardonable sin? It is the sin that is not confessed. 
Why is it not confessed? Because the heart becomes hardened. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, quench not the Spirit of God. The NIV says, don't put out the Spirit's fire. And so if you can hear the voice of the Spirit of God talking to you, and if you want to be saved, you haven't committed the unpardonable sin. I believe that I know of people who have committed the unpardonable sin. They have no conscience. They can lie. They can steal. They can cheat. And they can sit, my friend, and they can look people in the eye. And they can even talk religion. They're the best at talking religion. But they have no conscience because the Spirit of God has left them. But if you have a conscience today, and if you have a sense of your own unrighteousness, and if you want to be saved, you haven't committed the unpardonable sin. But remember, there's a line that is crossed by rejecting the Lord where the call of his spirit is lost. As you travel along mid the pleasure-mad throng, have you counted, have you counted the cost? Have you counted the cost if your soul should be lost, though you gain the whole world for your own? Even now it may be that the line you have crossed, have you counted Have you counted the cost? Sin unconfessed hardens the heart and leads to the unpardonable sin. I ask you today in the name of him who called me to preach, come to Christ, believe in Christ, confess your sins today. Here's another question. When are names written in the book of life and when are they removed? Come over here to Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5, it talks about the book of life. I hope your name is written there today. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5, Jesus said, He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. Do I believe in a book of life? Do I believe it's a book? I believe this is symbolic. I believe that God has got computers that make ours look really dumb. God has got a system, a tremendous memory. He has a mind that pervades the universe. And everything you and I have ever done from the moment we were born is recorded in the book of God. And God has also got a book, which is the book of life. When a person comes to Christ, when a person accepts Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, God says, write his name in my book. Would you like to have your name written in the book of life? If you give your life to Christ, your name is going to be written, my friend, in the book of life. Can your name be blotted out of the book of life? Yes, it can. How can my name be written, written in the book of life and be blotted out of the book of life? When a person's name comes up in the great judgment, do I believe in the pre-advent judgment? Yes, I do. I believe that there is coming a day when every person is going to stand before the judgment bar of God and give an account. And if it is then determined that that person has turned away from Christ and repudiated the blood of the Savior, the angels will be told, strike the name out of the book of life. That's why the Bible doesn't teach the doctrine of once saved, always saved, but it teaches the doctrine of holding 
I am held, and he that shall endure to the end shall be saved. That's why I say to my congregation, read your Bible every day, come to church, he that shall endure to the end shall be saved. Is the tribulation of Matthew 24 question? Is the tribulation of Matthew 24 both persecution and uh, the seven last plagues? It is both. Come over here to Matthew 24 and verse 21 and 22. Matthew 24 and verse 21 and 22. For there will be great distress, Jesus said, unequal from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equal again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. The great tribulation happens before the second coming. There's no rapture. There's no rapture. There's no rapture taught in the Bible. There's no rapture of the saints that gets them out of the tribulation. The saints are there in the tribulation because the Bible says if those days had not been shortened the elect couldn't even survive and the Bible tells us there comes a time of persecution that's the start of the great tribulation but then the great tribulation gets into high gear when the seven last plagues are poured out upon this world so it includes both question I have been wronged in my opinion, by a fellow believer in the church, does the Bible say anything about lawsuits? Yes, it does. Come over here to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And I believe that you and I ought to follow the Bible, not just pretend that we do. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 1 and then verse 7 and verse 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 1. Please look at the text. If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Verse 8, instead you yourselves cheat and do wrong and you do this to your brothers. How? By having lawsuits. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you're into lawsuits against your brethren, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And verse 7 says, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have already been completely defeated. Now people say, John Carter, you better wise up and wake up. This is America. Most people in this country sue. You better wake up. I've had grounds for suing people 20 times. I have been slandered. I've had books put out against me. I've had lies told. I've had letters circulating around the country. My attorneys have said to me, you have an open and shut case to sue but I want to tell you by the grace of God I will not sue because I want to be a Christian Amen. I'm not going to sue my brethren what say if your brethren are slandering you slandering you hey let me tell you folks something they've got a court case that they've got to face soon haven't they I want to be right with my God, don't you? So, my friend, a Christian should not be involved in lawsuits. Okay, here's a question. Scanner. Now, I don't know anything about this publication. Scanner. 
a publication of a church in Glendale just two miles from you. Wow. Scanner, a publication of a church in Glendale, condones and promotes homosexuality. Church? Scanner? Church here in Glendale? Are homosexual acts okay in today's society? Let me give you a text, dear friend. Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 30. Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 30. Leviticus chapter 20. And verse 13, verse 13, I'm sorry. Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 13. Got it? Pretty strong text. Let me ask you a question. Does everybody here believe in the Bible? Put up your hands if you believe in the Bible. I believe in the text of the Bible. So I go along with this text. The Bible says, if a man, now the Lord, chapter 20, verse 1, who is talking this? The Lord said to Moses. Now this is not a church. This is the Lord. Verse 13. If a man lies with a man as one lies with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They must be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. The Bible says that homosexual acts are detestable and the sentence of death is upon those who practice those evil deeds and upon those ministers who promote those deeds. The death sentence is upon them. I want to say this to those who are homosexuals who may be in my church and watching on television, God loves you. God loves the homosexual. God loves the adulterer. God loves the alcoholic. God loves the slanderer. But the cure is not to condone evil behavior. It is to give people power to overcome. Hmm. So... I want everybody here to know where we stand on this. Now, let me tell you something that, that was just given to me. They've just done a study in Canada. This comes from uh, the Off the Wire, Washington, April 22, from uh, Reuters. Maggie Fox, health and science correspondent. Canada study casts doubt on the idea of a gay gene. Now, it has been taught all around the world that people are born homosexuals because they've got a gay gene. The latest research says it isn't so. Now, I want to tell you this. From my experience, I believe that because we're all born in a state of sin and a state of fallenness, that we inherit sinful characteristics. I believe that people are born with weaknesses, particularly towards certain types of sins. And I believe that people can be born with weaknesses towards the sin of homosexual conduct. But I believe that the vast majority of people who become homosexuals become homosexuals by their personal choice. 
And I believe that every person has to make a decision. You see, we live in a society that says, it's not your fault the devil made me do it. You're not your fault if you go and get a gun because you can buy guns, it's the guns, gun lobby's fault, you see. You're not, not your fault if you get lung cancer, they shouldn't have sold you the cigarettes. So we live in the cop-out society. So I am brought up in this country to believe that I ought to blame everybody but myself for my own sins. I want to say I've got to take responsibility and I believe that for the homosexual whom God loves, there is deliverance from the sin of homosexual conduct in the power of the blood of Jesus. So that's where I stand on that. Pretty plain, isn't it? Could you, and I, this is not my idea. This is the idea of the Bible, and I am supported by all of the great Bible scholars in the world, Roman Catholic, Baptist, you go through it. I'm standing with the people who understand the Word. Here's another question. Could you please describe heaven in more detail? <laughs> Well, I'm glad that I got you interested. Because if you're interested in heaven, you'll want to go there. I want to say this to you because we don't have time now. I've got a whole video on heaven. Mm. Just make your mouth water for that wonderful place. If you want to read about heaven, read Revelation 21 and 22. That describes the holy city, the new Jerusalem, and the tree of life, and the river of life, and the Lamb of God who was there, and the saints of God who are there, and the saints of God who are going to eat the leaves of the tree of life and never, never get old and never get sick, and never get migraines, and never get cancer, and never get diabetes. A land, my friend, where there'll be complete justice, and there'll be no sin, and there'll be no more partings, and you're going to see Bob again. In the kingdom of God, Bob is going, Alice, to be raised as a young man. Last night I had a picture of Bob, a beautiful picture standing there with his double bass. And I thought, what a beautiful picture. I thought, one day, Alice, we're going to be there and Bob is going to be young. He's not going to have any scars God because God is going to turn the scars into stars you see and it's going to be a wonderful land and that land my friend is for you I want you to think of the text you don't need to turn it up you know it John chapter 3 verse 16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but of everlasting life. Here is the gift. God can't make you take the gift of pardon, but God has done everything possible that you and I might be saved. He has given us a Bible. He has sent us the Holy Spirit. He has sent down from the throne of glory his own son, the hoarded treasure of eternity. He came down to the cross. 
He died on the cross. He bore our sins. He went down into the grave. He was raised from the dead. He is at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And soon he shall come and save and redeem his people. And the Bible says, for God so loved the world, he so loved Roman Catholics and Baptists and atheists and heterosexuals and homosexuals. He loved every person. He loved the communists and he loved the atheists. He loved us all so much that he gave his own son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish. That is an affirmative, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. I call upon you today, even though you may have questions, let me tell you this. The answer to every human question is not found in a quick little answer such as I've given you today. The answer to all of our searchings and our questionings is found in a person. Because the Bible says, those who have the Son have life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You're not saved by belonging to a denomination. You're not saved by belonging to a church. You are saved by Christ. And this salvation becomes a reality in your life when you ask Christ to come into your life and accept forgiveness for your sins. And then the Holy Spirit starts to make of you a new person. What a grand old song it is I used to sing as a teenager. What a wonderful change in my life has been wrought since Jesus came into my heart. I have life in my soul and light in my soul for which long I had sought since Jesus came into my heart. Let Christ come into your heart today. Amen. Please bow your heads. Our Father, we thank you today that every human question has a divine answer. And that divine answer is Christ. Might it be that our faith shall not be built upon the shallow philosophy of human psychology or human philosophy or human theology, but may it be built upon Christ and the immutable truths of his holy word. Our Father today, as a congregation and as individuals, we say, we open wide our hearts, come into our hearts, O oh Lord Christ. We worship you, praise you, thank you, and give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. For his glory, for his glory.